Welcome to Salon Air. I'm Ruth Dickey, Executive Director of Seattle Arts and Lectures. Salon Air is a podcast of some of the most engaging talks from the world's best writers for more than 30 years of Seattle Arts and Lectures. Support for the inaugural season of Salon Air comes from the M.J. Murdoch Charitable Trust. For more conversation and connection, join us for our 2018-19 season, featuring talks by Doris Kearns Goodwin, Pete Souza, Jill Lepore, and more literary surprises. Tickets are available now at lectures.org. This episode features America's first-ever female Secretary of State, Madeleine Albright, who joined us at the Paramount Theater in April 2018 for Seattle Arts and Lectures 2017-18 season. I had the pleasure of introducing Albright, who was then interviewed by Mark Sussman, Chief Strategy Officer of the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, about her latest book, Fascism, A Warning. Here's an evening of urgent questions and diplomatic insights with Madeleine Albright. Early in her important new book, Fascism, A Warning, Madeleine Albright points to the rise of Mussolini and Hitler and Franco and writes, quote, Fascism caught on because many people in Europe and elsewhere saw it as a mighty wave that was transforming history, that was owned by them alone, and that couldn't be stopped. Fascism, a warning, is a powerful book about this mighty and menacing wave, its history, its present, and cresting future. Albright taps her personal history as an immigrant, a professor, a historian, a diplomat to bring perspective to both the rise, the history of fascism and the rise of fascist leaders and to analyze and situate the rise of extremism and hate sweeping the globe today. Dr. Albright was the 64th Secretary of State of the United States and the first woman to serve in that role. Mm-hmm. From 1993 to 1997, Dr. Albright served as the U.S. Permanent Representative to the United Nations and was a member of the President's Cabinet. She's a professor in the practice of diplomacy at my alma mater, the Georgetown University School of Foreign Service, and in 2012, she was chosen by President Obama to receive the nation's highest civilian honor, the Presidential Medal of Freedom, in recognition... in recognition of her contributions to international peace and democracy. She's the author of five New York Times best-selling books and the proud owner of the most politically significant and stunningly beautiful pin collection in the world. <laughs> we are proud to have her here with us tonight and proud to be celebrating the publication of this important book to help us all understand the past and ask important questions about how to safeguard democracy and freedom in the present. Please join me in welcoming Dr. Madeleine Albright. Thank you. Secretary Albright, uh, welcome to Seattle. As you can tell, people are very pleased to see you here and to hear from you this evening, and thank you so much for taking the time. Uh, I want to thank Ruth for the introduction and telling everybody who I am, because not everybody always knows. Uh, 
Not long ago, I was coming back from China, and Chicago was the first port of entry, and I was there getting undressed for the security people, and I put my stuff down on the conveyor belt, and the lady behind me said, so where'd you get all those screw-top bottles? I said, at the container store. And then I was going through the, and the magnetometer, all of a sudden the TSA guard says, oh my God, it's you. Uh, he said, I'm from Bosnia, and we all love you in Bosnia, and if it weren't for you, there wouldn't be a Bosnia, and you're always welcome in Bosnia. He said, can I have my picture taken with you? And I said, sure. And the whole line gets screwed up, and I go back to get my stuff, and the lady of the screw-top bottle says, so what exactly happened here? And I said, well, I used to be Secretary of State, and she said, of Bosnia? So, <laughs> <laughs> so Ruth, thank you. <laughs> well, I think Bosnia would happily have you as Secretary of State, uh, as would many other countries in the world. Yeah. Uh, but maybe if we start actually where sort of Ruth did with the framing uh, and the quote from your book, fascism is just not a term that's been used in public discourse for a very long time, for good reason. But it's now staring, and everyone's in the book, from the cover of your book, and it's attached to a second phrase, a warning. What is the warning, and what really motivated you to write yeah. this book? Well, first of all, Ruth also mentioned about my background, and um, I really, with my family, were victims of fascism. I was born in Czechoslovakia in 1937, um, and two years before the war, and um, a watershed event for Czechoslovakia was the Munich Agreement, in which the British and French made an agreement with the Germans and Italians over the head of the Czechoslovaks in order to accommodate a German minority that had been propagandized by a disciple of Hitler's, Konrad Henlein. Um, and they made this agreement, and the country I was born in was sold down the river. Then in March 1939, the Nazis marched into Prague, and we left because my father was a Czechoslovak diplomat and the government in exile was in London. Uh, I, we came back after the war, and then my father was made ambassador to Yugoslavia, and then we had to leave again because of communism. And so um, I did not know until much later, um, until actually I became secretary, that my family, 26 members of my family, had been murdered in the Holocaust. And so understanding more about fascism generally um, has been a very important and personal uh, history for me. But the warning is that um, there are certain steps that were kind of, the book is really quite historical in terms of looking at how Mussolini came to power and then Hitler, looking at some of the things that are going on uh, in Europe now and in the Philippines and uh, in Venezuela, um, that there really are certain steps that one can see. And Mussolini, there was, a tr I think one of the most interesting quotes in my book is what Mussolini said, that if you pluck a chicken one feather at a time, it won't be noticed. Uh, and so I see feathers being plucked, um, and that's the warning. And I think that we have to understand better what fascism means and how it comes into place. Well, another quote you have from Mussolini uh, talking about the origins of fascism is you talk about how he had very little tolerance for dissenting opinions in his cabinet. And uh, I think you have a quote from him that he said, 
often I would like to be proven wrong, but it's never happened yet. Yeah. Uh, do you see any other parallels or warnings? Yeah. Well, uh, he also actually did say he wanted to drain the swamp in Italian. Um, um, and I think that one of the things, um, by the way, I want to make something perfectly clear that I am not calling Trump a fascist. I do think, however, that there are certain signs that make me very nervous in terms of somebody who does think that he's always right and that um, he can solve every problem and doesn't like a lot of dissent. But one of the things that really does bother me is that it is clear that um, there really are certain things that are going on in terms of declaring the press an enemy of the people. Um, and, and just to go back on something, I have taken a look at Mussolini and Hitler, but also have taken a look at what's going on in Hungary and in Poland and Turkey, Russia, uh, then Venezuela and the Philippines, a number of other places. And there's a common theme, which is um, accusing the press of being fake of making up facts, of those that have no regard for democratic institutions that um, really exacerbate the differences that already exist in every uh, society for a variety of reasons and, and identify with a group at the expense of the other group. So it's a kind of us versus them activity. And those are the kinds of things that I can, some of which I can see happening in the United States and some among our allies. Uh, that are in the same position of exacerbating the divisions, having no respect for democratic institutions, thinking they're above the law, uh, and generally propagandizing our societies by using the media um, against us. So I want to come back to the United States uh, in due course, and I'm sure there'll be lots of questions from the audience, but just even on that answer, you stretched from Venezuela to the Philippines, to Hungary. This is something happening all over the world right now. Why do you think it's such a global phenomenon? Well, I think that um, we, I have kind of been talking about the fact that we're in a third era after the end of World War II. So what happened after World War II, we had the Cold War and the world was divided into red and red, white and blue. Um, and there were a lot of policies determined by how we dealt in the Cold War. The second era was after the end of the Cold War when the Berlin Wall came down and there really was a sense of great hope, um, frankly euphoria, in terms of the possibilities of a lot of country becoming democratic and the multilateral system working and a lot of cooperation. And then 9-11 happened and I do think that we then entered a third era um, which then was also accompanied by major changes in technology um, and a disappointment with the kinds of things that we thought were happening in the second era. And so I think we are in a time when things are genuinely in disarray, but the reason that I see this happening in various places is there has been, and whether it's a result of the financial crisis or of technology that has left people without jobs um, or the training to take the new jobs and has disaggregated voices that people don't quite know where we are at this point. So there are these divisions in society, whether it's here or in Hungary or in all those places. And then there is a leader that shows up that says, I've got the answer to this. 
Um, and so the thing that I think distinguishes uh, fascism as a concept uh, in difference to just plain old dictatorship is that it comes, there's a movement from the bottom of people that are dissatisfied and then the leader from the top who takes advantage of that dissatisfaction, makes it even worse, and comes up with simplistic answers. And then the other thing that is a category or a symptom is you have to blame somebody. And what we have seen is there's always a scapegoat uh, because it's somebody else's fault. And it comes as a result of hyper-nationalism, and you think the foreigners are the ones that have created the problems. And what has happened in all the countries that I've been talking about there is a lot, of a lot of refugees and migration going on. So the Hungarians, for instance, have blamed the migration policy for closing their borders. And you see that in a lot of places. So this blaming the other uh, for this, and usually some kind of a foreign uh, group, um, whether religious or, or uh, linguistic or something, which you, you blame everything on them, that scapegoat concept. So you mentioned just your own family history and finding relatives who died in the Holocaust. And just sticking with the Hungary example, just even since you wrote the book, there's been another election in Hungary and uh, the incumbent president won with a larger majority. And part of his campaign was very much singling out George Soros uh, as an enemy. And there's a lot of discussion about whether that is in itself a kind of form of anti-Semitism or resurgence of anti-Semitism in Europe using that kind of other and outsider just both with the specific Hungary example, but more broadly in Europe at the moment and sticking in Europe, are you concerned about a resurgence and your, that widest anti-Semitism itself with other trends? Uh, you talk a lot about the growth of the uh, Muslim community in Europe in your book too and how you know, that is playing into the, the whole conflict. Well, let me just say a little bit of background on Viktor Orban. I first met him um, in the 80s when he was everybody's favorite dissident. Um, and he was a young guy who was fighting against communism, and he was funded by George Soros uh, to go and study at Oxford. Um, and he came to the United States, and people thought he kind of was um, this part of this euphoric view of what really could happen. Um, and what is the issue, I think, he, one of the other things that happens is kind of working to change the constitution of any country and say they can have lifetime uh, or changing the rules of elections. And Orban has done that to a great extent. He also started a youth party. As he got older, the party got older, Fidesz. Um, but I do think that he has uh, kind of taken ethnic purity of the Hungarian people and is blaming Soros. And he's made very clear that that, because he's a, a Jew, um, but it's also true about Muslims. And so I do think there's this identification of the other um, that is not part of the ethnic pure nationalism that has arisen, uh, and primarily in Central Europe. What I think is interesting, it's the 100th anniversary of the end of World War I, and the countries of Central and Eastern Europe really were born at that period, and they were born on the basis of national identity. Um, because they had been part of the Austro-Hungarian Empire and people felt they needed their own country. Just not so parenthetically, I want to say Czechoslovakia, um, the first president of Czechoslovakia was a man uh, called Thomas Masaryk who married an American, Charlotte Gehrig, and he took her maiden name as his middle name. If you can imagine, they were married in the last quarter of the 19th century. That was really something. 
And then the Czechoslovak Constitution was based on the American Constitution with one significant addition. It had equal rights language in it in 1918. But the countries were founded on national identity. And so as the European experiment of the European Union all of a sudden seemed faceless and there were a bunch of bureaucrats in Brussels making rules, all of a sudden this national identity fervor erupted. And it's fine to have a national identity. We all want to know who we are, and either linguistic, ethnic, or religious. But when my identity hates your identity, that is where the problem comes. Patriotism is great. Hypernationalism is very dangerous. And so we're seeing that part also, which scares me about the things that are going on in Europe uh, and in other places of blaming the other. So you also cite the history of Azarik and uh, his final demise. This is very tragic, uh, and the role that your father was playing at yeah. the time as a sort of warning sign of what can happen when you know, good people uh, aren't really sort of supported and tilted up. And you talk a little bit about that example. Yes, and what, I mean, well, it's interesting. Yeah. That Maastricht was the son yeah. of the first president, and he had actually been in England with the government in exile, and I knew him when um, uh, I was a little girl, and then when my, I told you my father was ambassador to Yugoslavia, the little girl in the national costume they gave flowers at the airport. That's what I did for a living. Uh, and what was interesting, this Jan Masaryk was, became the foreign minister. And when he came to Yugoslavia, he always had his right arm in a sling. And I remember asking my father, you know, was his hand, arm broken? He said, no, he just wouldn't shake hands with communists. Um, but what was interesting, and it, I don't want to get overly complicated here, but what happened was the government in Czechoslovakia after uh, World War II was a, was a coalition government. And there had been a sense, having told you about Munich, that the Czechoslovaks felt let down by the West. And the Soviet Union uh, pretended, actually, that they might have defended Czechoslovakia if the French had kept their word. And so there was this kind of feeling about, well, maybe the Russians weren't so bad. Um, and Czechoslovakia during the interwar period had both a legal communist party and a legal socialist party. So all of a sudden there was this coalition government and Jan Masaryk was a Democrat that had a communist as his deputy and it was a very complicated time. And what happened was that Czechoslovakia wanted to accept the Marshall Plan and they were forbidden from doing that by the Soviet Union. And all of a sudden it was clear that the Soviets were going to, and communism was going to win. And yet, and this is one of the lessons out of this, is that democracy in Czechoslovakia was undermined by the communists who used democratic means uh, to push the Democrats out and um, used elections and coalition governments um, and people were not vigilant enough. And when we came to the United States, my father said um, that he was afraid that Americans took their democracy too much for granted, that there was kind of a sense not a little bit too complacent, uh, because he had seen democracy undermined twice, actually. So broadening out, and again, I promise I will be coming back to the United States, but you mentioned the Soviet Union there, and uh, you write a fair bit about uh, the current president, President Putin. I think you call him a 
very successful product of a Soviet patriotic education or some yeah. framing like that. Yeah. Uh, That's when I'm polite. Yeah. <laughs> uh. So when you're not polite, what do you say and what do you take of, uh, of Russia's current actions globally in places like Syria yeah. and elsewhere and also uh, in the social media in the United well, States? Well, let me just say that I used to be a Soviet yeah. expert. And when I look at my library, I kind of think, is it archaeology? And actually not. It's quite relevant to some of the things that have been going on. And in um, 91, after the uh, dissolution of the Soviet Union, I um, was a professor and I was running a think tank, and I was asked to do a whole survey of all of Europe in terms of how people felt after the end of the Cold War. And we had a lot of great um, uh, questionnaires, and we had focus groups. And I will never forget a focus group outside of Moscow where this man stands up and says, I'm so embarrassed. We used to be a superpower, and now we're Bangladesh with missiles. And we had been asked to do something at the end of the Cold War that had never been done before, which was how to devolve the power of your major adversary without a war. And so it was a very complicated time, and um, I think the, so the Russians really did feel disrespected, even though we tried very hard to uh, respect them. Um, and what happened is that Putin has identified himself with the loss of grandeur that uh, the Soviet Russia and the Soviet Union had had. And, and I think that he's done that very successfully. He has played a weak hand very well. Um, and he has, um, certainly in terms of acting illegally as far as Ukraine is concerned, um, and pushing them uh, because they were looking more towards the West. Um, the Russians have had an interest in having an influential role in the Middle East for a long time. They are now doing that uh, so that there are agreements where the Russians and the, the Turks and the Iranians actually are talking to each other and the United States is not there. And so uh, Putin keeps really pushing. He has managed to weaponize information uh, by um, the kind of work that he's done by using the media and putting false information into it and undermining the democratic system in Central and Eastern Europe during the elections, Brexit. Um, and also, uh, I believe that he, they, he played a very large role um, in what was happening in the United States. So what do I call him? He's a KGB officer. Um, and he knows how to do it. He, has, he is a product of KGB education, and there's nobody that does propaganda better than the KGB, and he is, that's what he's doing. And, and he is, I think, in many ways, um, as I said, identifying with this loss of grandeur. Um, and the, the Russians, even though their economy is not doing well, is willing to put up with all that because he has returned, in so many ways, Russia, um, the new uh, defense strategy that the Trump administration put out are saying that our biggest problem uh, is competition from Russia and China. So all of a sudden to have put Russia on the same level as China, it's a gift to Putin. Uh, so switching across another ocean there, you talked about uh, the Russian, you talked about wondering that they were Bangladesh with missiles. So North Korea, you could argue, wishes it was as developed as Bangladesh, but they yeah. do have missiles. Right. And that is giving them a frightening degree of relevance in today's geopolitics. Uh, and yet you also say in the book uh, one of the, 
I'm not sure I call it complementary, but potentially complementary things about President Trump is that you wouldn't rule out the fact that his complete lack of respect for diplomatic convention could produce some unconventional results. And it seems from his quotes, including even from today at his press conference, that he is looking at North Korea as a place where his unconventional style might get results. Yeah. What's your read? Well, first of all, let me say, I first came to Seattle in 1950 with my father, who was teaching in the summer at the University of Washington. And the reason I say that, in June 25th, 1950, was when the Korean War began. Um, and everything goes back to the Korean War. And the fact that we don't have a peace treaty with North Korea, just have an armistice, and, we, and the Korean Peninsula has been divided ever since. Um, and it has been unbelievably complicated. During the Clinton administration, we spent a lot of time on Korea, and I won't go through the whole history, but I am still the highest level sitting official to have met with uh, the North Korean leader. I went there in the summer of 2000, um, and we were trying to sort out what they were doing in terms of their missiles and their nuclear capabilities. Um, and um, they, I have, you know, I, even as I discussed uh, which countries I see with fascist tendencies, the only country that I think is truly fascist is North Korea um, because it's complete control over everything and a poor population and various aspects of things. We know very little about North Korea. Um, and even when I went, we, I knew very little about Kim Jong-il, the father of this guy. Um, the only thing I really did know was that um, and I take full responsibility for Dennis Rodman because what happened, <laughs> um, we knew that um, Kim Jong-il loved basketball, so I took over a basketball autographed by Michael Jordan, and it's in their Holy of Holies. Um, but um, one of the things, I w we had been told by our intelligence that the father was crazy and a pervert. I found out he wasn't crazy. Um, and so... Um, um, <laughs> I won't go through the whole story, but the bottom line is that I do think that um, what I find interesting is that Kim Jong-un um, has managed to um, get us engaged in a way um, that could be very good for him and good for us, frankly. The issue in terms of, there is a whole theory in foreign policy, which is the crazy man theory that if you keep the other country off balance, Nixon did this in terms of the way he was dealing with China for a while and just generally, but, um, but the idea and unpredictability, but you can't be unpredictable all the time. That is very dangerous or crazy all the time. Um, and so the question is whether, given the kinds of threats that Trump was making against North Korea and calling him rocket man and all kinds of things, um, it's conceivable that through the pressure, he has managed to get um, him to the table. The question is, what now? Um, and whether they are at all prepared for what are going to be very complicated talks. I happen to believe it's important to have talks. Diplomacy is not a gift. Diplomacy is the language that you use primarily to talk to people that you can't agree with in order to try to figure out some solutions. Um, and, um, by the way, President Macron is in, uh, the President of France is in the U.S. now, and I raise this because um, 
uh, I have a lot of, one of my friends is a former French foreign minister, and they're wonderfully cynical. And so we were, I was asking for what is the definition of uh, diplomacy, and the answer was it allows you to talk to monsters. So I do think it has to be seen as a way, as just a tool to talk to other countries. But you have to be prepared. And before I went to North Korea, we had spent an incredible amount of time. President Clinton had asked for a total review of our Korean policy from former Secretary of Defense Bill Perry. Um, there were a lot of preparations. We all worked very hard. And I think it's unclear as to how much preparation has been done. And then the other part, let's presume that everything goes well. There will be an incredible amount of work afterwards in terms of diplomacy. And the State Department has been gutted. Um, the main guy that um, was in charge of North Korea policy left. And um, presumably we're going to have a new uh, Secretary of State who has just been to North Korea, which I think is positive. But there is going to be an awful lot of work. And it's going to take a lot of discipline. Um, and you can't have the kind of thing. All of a sudden, President Trump is saying that he thinks that Kim Jong-un is an honorable man, which is not what he said three weeks ago. So um, I think the, the unpredictability of the unpredictability um, is something that we have to be very watchful about. So you just brought up there the State Department losing its positive, and you talked about being gutted. Uh, as the department that you were the former custodian of, how concerned are you about what's happened in the State Department of the last year and a half in terms of that and its ability to help the United States uh, do the job of diplomacy, as you described? I, I'm very concerned, and concerned for a number of reasons. I was in a um, session with uh, some Republicans just as the... Uh, um, the new administration was coming in, and I was um, talking to them about, you know, who was going to be in the government. And they said, well, we can't have these people that worked for the Democratic administration because they're not loyal Americans. And I just kind of, you know, what? Um, the foreign service officers and the civil servants that have worked throughout the government, especially in the State Department, the foreign service officers, these are people that have worked for many administrations and are public servants that are loyal Americans. So there was this kind of distrust of the State Department in the first place. Then the issue was the budget. Um, and I think one of the issues there is I think people are not familiar enough with the numbers. I am um, very supportive of our military. Um, I think it's one of the aspects that I learned um, when I was in office, well, first of all, I fell in love with Americans in uniform during World War II when they came and liberated. So, um, but I do think in terms of the partnership of um, force and diplomacy, I'm going to do a call out now because General Shalikashvili's widow is here with us. And what happened was he and I worked together very carefully in terms of force and diplomacy. And there was one time that he and I were standing in front of the Situation Room at the White House, and Secretary Rubin, Secretary of Treasury, came by, and he looked at us and he said, force and diplomacy. And Charlie said, and which is which? Uh, because uh, there really, you do need those two things together. And so um, I think that, so the budget for the military at the moment, that was just voted, was that, um, 
the budget for the Pentagon is around $700 billion. The budget for the State Department is kind of like $39 billion. And I think that contrast is so stunning because you do need the two together. So people left, people are not, and the budget for the State Department has to go for, for the programs that are out there for the, to pay the diplomats, to have secure buildings, um, and in fact to then pay our dues to international organizations. And it's really not a lot of money. And when the Congress wanted to give Secretary Tillerson more money, he didn't want it. And plus he was reorganizing the State Department in some way that didn't make much sense. And so um, it, is, it has the more, you could now say low morale at the State Department is a hyphenated word. Um, because people don't know what they're supposed to be doing. Um, I do think that uh, I was encouraged by the, I don't agree with a lot of the things that Secretary-designate Pompeo's been talking about, but he did talk about needing to rehabilitate the State Department and a belief in democracy programs, and so I hope that he follows through on that. Uh, so just, I, I wouldn't be doing uh, my job for the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation if I didn't touch on one aspect of that, which is about the foreign aid budget. And uh, in your book, one of the bits of good news you do cite at the end is uh, how in some of these global trends that we have been seeing progress against extreme poverty, against disease, against some you know, other areas, and the United States plays a critical role there. Again, that's a tool that hasn't been being used as much by this administration and the proposed cuts to foreign aid were even steeper than the proposed cuts to the overall State Department. Uh, but just wondering how you see that rolling out and how critical you see that as a dimension of U.S. foreign policy. Well, I think it's absolutely essential. I teach a course, by the way. I say foreign policy is trying to get some country to do what you want. That's all it is. So what are the tools? And there are not a lot of tools in the National Security Toolbox. There is diplomacy, bilateral and multilateral. And then the economic tools, the, the carrots, which are aid and trade, and the sticks, which are sanctions. Then the threat of the use of force, the use of force, intelligence and law enforcement, that's it. And aid has been, I think, a remarkably important tool um, because um, it does obviously assist countries and uh, works on their economic and their health issues in a number of different ways. Um, it is not easy to get, uh, by the way, basically um, when you try to get people to vote, kind of putting foreign and assistance together is not a good combination of words. Um, and so I think it's important to kind of see it as um, development assistance, but also national security support. Um, but I think that it's a very, it's very needed in what happens. and. Um, it is, it works, it's not a lot of money, frankly, and I think it is very important. But what has happened now, there is this whole attitude that um, those foreigners are taking advantage of us, that the United States is a victim. I, I find it stunning to think that we are a victim. Um, and then, in fact, also kind of a sense that people are punished by saying, I'm going to cut all your foreign assistance. Um, even if it's not a lot. And basically, we are undercutting the life and the health of people in other countries who are very important to us in so many ways. So I do see it as a very important tool. There's a very interesting op-ed today in the New York Times, which is there's always this question, 
what comes first, political development or economic development? You argue that in graduate school a lot. Um, and the bottom line is they have to go together because democracy has to deliver and people want to vote and eat. And so this professor at Yale was writing about the fact that people that are interested in human rights, which I think many of us are, certainly you are and, and Bill Gates is and the organization, is that it also has to be not only about whether people um, can live freely, but whether they can exist economically. And that economic development and inequality that's created is also essential. And I thought it actually was a perfect op-ed to go with my book because I think that if there is economic inequality, it does create that division in groups which is then exacerbated by some demagogic leader. So I do think we have to look at assistance uh, as both economically and um, in terms of the human rights aspect of them. So at this stage I'm going to ask, uh, most of you will have pieces of paper that were on your uh, chairs or things, so we are going to try and collect some questions from the audience. Uh, and there'll be people coming by the aisle. So if you want to start writing down or if you haven't write those questions and then collect them and then we'll be able to touch on a few of them uh, before we finish up. Uh, but anytime, just, Ruching, you, you talk uh, a little bit in the book about the history of the America First slogan and yeah. its background and how it, it's been resonating in the current context and its historical context. And that also, uh, the historical context was a lot around not engaging in multilateral machinery. The, you know, it was the, the spirit around the time of the founding of the UN uh, and going into World War II and out of it. Just both, how do you see the risks of that playing within the domestic political discourse and how do you see that linked to American support for multilateral institutions, particularly the United Nations? Well, I do think that America is a uh, an exceptional, I happen to believe, an exceptional country, but partially geographically also, a continent nation that uh, was protected by two oceans and had friendly neighbors on both sides. And there is kind of a sense that we can exist by ourselves. Uh, um, you know, George Washington and his farewell speech and no entangling alliances and, you know, why should we worry about all that? So there is this kind of tradition of Americans staying apart, but it became very clear, and as I talked before about World War I, we ultimately did get involved in that. Then there was a period, and it was this interwar period, where Americans, and this is where America first came from, which is in the 30s, kind of why should we be involved um, with a bunch of people someplace, and what earthly reason would we care about that? The bottom line is that it is the duty of every president to protect our people, our territory, and our way of life. More and more, um, it was evident that all three of those things depended on what was going on in other countries. Um, and so we go then into World War II um, and uh, saved a lot of people's lives. And, and I think, but nevertheless, there's kind of this lingering aspect of why do we need to be involved with others? Um, the U.S., even though Woodrow Wilson was um, really one of the creators of the whole concept of the League of Nations, it was voted against by Congress, and it's the U.S. that basically started the United Nations, um, FDR and then Harry Truman specifically. 
Um, but Americans don't like the word multilateralism. It has too many syllables and it ends in an ism. Um, but all it means is partnership. Um, and I think that the world is complicated enough that there need to be kind of, uh, I don't believe in world government, and the UN is not world government. It is a composition of nation states. Um, and I think that there are levels of cooperation that can come out of international organizations. And there are certain issues out there that no matter how powerful the United States is, cannot be dealt with alone. One of them is nuclear proliferation. The other is climate change. By the way, the Earth is not flat. Uh, and um, I think we all can understand there is climate change. Uh, and, and I do think that there are cooperative methods that are needed that can come from um, the United Nations and a variety of other organizations. And I have said that organizations and people at age 70 need a little refurbishing. Um, and so that is what's happening now. I think that the UN does need uh, some reform. And, um, but one of the things, by the way, the US thought the UN needed some reform um, for quite a long time. It's a very big bureaucracy. Um, and then at the end of the Cold War, we wanted that bureaucracy to do gymnastics. And so when I went up there, one of my assignments was to work for UN reform. The only problem was that the previous administration uh, under President Bush had done a lot of um, activities with the UN, but had not paid their peace, our peacekeeping bills. Um, and then Congress had decided unilaterally not to pay what we were assessed. So there I was trying to get reform uh, while we were helping to create an artificial uh, financial crisis. So our best friends, the British, uh, spoke at the General Assembly, uh, delivering a line they had waited more than 200 years to say, which was representation without taxation. <laughs> uh, so it, it's um, uh, hard to push for reform if you're not paying your bills, which is exactly what's happening now again Congress has unilaterally said that we will only pay a certain 25% or when we're supposed to pay more. And so I do think it needs help. The other part that I have been very interested in for a long time, the United Nations is based on the nation state. But the truth is that there are other non-state actors that play a very important role in all of this, which are corporations and non-governmental organizations and Bill Gates, I mean, is a non-state actor um, who has done an incredible amount in terms of assistance in a variety of places. So I have been arguing for some time that non-state actors need to be part of the system much earlier, to be there at the table when decisions are being made about how to handle a crisis somewhere so that it isn't just kind of come in and deal with what's already been decided. But there definitely need to be some changes. There need to be a way that regional organizations fit in. But the world today cannot exist on the basis of not having some organization that can blend our interests rather than just the nation states, and especially as hypernationalism is taking hold in a variety of places. So I think we're in a very, very complicated world at the moment. Um, and there are those that are taking advantage of it in terms of pushing the kinds of things I'm talking about in my book, and those that are trying to 
normalize things and say, yeah, this is like this and then we'll get over it. We can't normalize what's going on. We have to recognize, and that, that's why my book is a warning, because we have to make sure that we get out of this era with some kind of a better organizational system and not depend on demagogic leaders taking advantage of the um, divisions that are in societies at the moment. So, you talked there importantly about international institutions. How worried are you about our domestic institutions? Um, well, I am worried. By the way, there's a, um, you know, that saying we all know, see something, say something. I have added to it, do something. So, I've written my book. Um, and I have my to-do list about what people need to do. First of all, we cannot let our press be demonized by calling it the enemy of the people. Uh, 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 we cannot allow our judicial branch to be denigrated uh, by having uh, a president who doesn't seem to regard it highly and thinks he's above the law. Um, I think what we need to do is um, really get very active in terms of, I hope a lot of people run for office. I hope the people that aren't running for office will support the people that they want to see in office and understand the responsibilities of citizenship um, and that we have to, every, every vote counts. And so we have to register people to vote um, and we have to be supportive of active involvement in our democratic institutions. I have kind of a paradoxical statement in my book, which is I believe in the resiliency of democracy, but I'm also concerned about the fragility of democracy. Um, and it really requires people to act and be involved and, and take an interest in things. And then I think that we need to have civil discussions um, and not decide that just because we disagree with somebody that they're stupid. Um, and we have to listen to other than things that we just uh, cannot be in our echo chamber. You should all be glad that I live in the other Washington because I drive uh, and I listen to right-wing radio and it makes me very mad and uh, I you know, yell a lot and someday I'll be arrested. Uh, but, um, but I do think that one has to, to listen. And then I have to say, I'm sure you there are many- You can always seek asylum in Bosnia. That, that, <laughs> uh, I think that, uh, I'm sure that many people in the audience feel this way. I was so moved by the children that were marching. Um, you know, um, and um, I know practically every speaker and every book quotes Robert Frost. So I will do that. Robert Frost said, as he got older, the teachers got younger. Um, and I do think that those kids were really teaching us something, that they want gun sanity so they don't have to go to school in flak jackets. And I think we need to listen to what they're saying and have them be active with us. And by the way, I would like to congratulate the young woman in her poem because I think mm -hmm. that is also part of it. Um, yeah. So, 
On that, while there are a lot of actions, you've cited some, but I think one of the challenges that we're currently facing in the divided America we're living in is a kind of uh, almost a sort of a frustration and a lack of knowledge of what to do, how to engage, how to respond. You can do, yes, some of it is running for office, but not everybody can run for office. Some of it is engaging. Do you have sort of thoughts on what the right kind of civic engagement is? In yeah. a time well, let like me this? just say, I think that, and not to get overly theoretical here, but I think the social contract is broken. And the social contract historically has been is that people gave up some of their individual rights in order to be protected by a state. And what has happened is both sides have kind of lost track of what to do. I, I do believe that you need a state in order to build roads and provide schools and um, carry out their duties. But also the citizens have duties um, in terms of being active and um, responsive, and, and I think we're not doing that enough. And when I say run for office, I'm not just talking about running for Congress or President, but all the local community activities that take place, and um, mayors and city councils, and basically community kind of action. Um, and it's not going to happen if people don't decide that they want to work together actively. I also do think that we have to ask the right questions. You know, what kind of leaders do we want? What are they going to be doing? Um, and not just, um, n not be passive in terms of the things that we're learning. And then it's not easy to, I, I'm sure I'll be accused of being a relativist on truth, but it is difficult to know what absolute truth is. But you do have to be at least the kind of person that doesn't just listen to one thing, that uh, kind of does research in a number of ways and gets resource, gets information from a variety of areas and decides that, they, that we each have a responsibility to do something and that hoping that this will all go away is not going to happen. It's going to take activity by people who care about the country that they live in. I'm going to switch to some of the questions, and th there are some great uh, questions. Uh, maybe starting with the most important, or two linked ones that are really important and we haven't touched. One is, what pin are you wearing tonight no. and why? No. And the second linked one is, how do you organize and sort your pins? How do you carry them with you? How do you, what's the general pin management okay. toolbox? This is really serious. Uh, let me just explain, if some people don't know how this whole pin thing got started. I clearly like jewelry. So what happened when I went to the UN in February 93, it was the end of the Gulf War, um, and I'm, the uh, ceasefire had been translated into a series of sanctions resolutions. And um, I was an instructed ambassador, and my instructions were to make sure the sanctions stayed on. So every day I said something terrible about Saddam Hussein, which he deserved. He invaded Kuwait. So all of a sudden a poem appeared in the papers in Baghdad comparing me to many things, but among them an unparalleled serpent. So I had a snake pin, and I started wearing it whenever we talked about Iraq. Um, and then you know how the ambassadors come out and talk to the press. And all of a sudden, the camera and the reporter asked me, why are you wearing that snake pin? And I said, because Saddam Hussein compared me to an unparalleled serpent. And then I thought, well, this is fun. So I went out um, 
And I bought a lot of costume jewelry to reflect what I thought was going to happen on any given day. So on good days, I wore flowers and butterflies and balloons. And on bad days, I wore carnivorous animals and spiders and things. Um, and then the ambassadors, you know, we'd say, well, what are we going to do today? And if you remember, the first President Bush had said, read my lips, no new taxes. So I said, read my pins. And that's how the whole thing started. Um, and um, they really, I did have an exhibit of all of them, and I have a book called Read My Pins. And they all have uh, diplomatic stories so that I can make foreign policy less foreign. Um, and so, for instance, when the Russians were bugging the State Department in a room that was not so far from my office, we did, we found the man listening to us outside. And so um, we do what diplomats do, which was to marsh Moscow and say, this is impossible. But the next time I met with the Russian foreign minister, I wore this huge bug, and he knew exactly <laughs> what I was doing. So um, uh, this pin today is Mercury, the messenger. And so I decided to simplify my life a little bit on this trip and not take all my pins with me. So I'm wearing Mercury throughout the book tour. How do I organize my pins? I used to organize them by color in little bags that look like little shoe bags. And then I decided to organize them by species. Um, so it was very complicated and uh, trying to decide what kind of a day you're going to have. And then what happens is people are so used to my wearing pins now that when I'm not wearing a pin, like when I'm exercising or at the grocery store, um, they say, why aren't you wearing a pin? So it's, you know, anyway, that's my story. Huh. Yeah. And I, I, one additional comment. The book is really, uh, and the exhibit, was a great way to, to talk about foreign policy. Uh, because they all had some diplomatic story. So uh, because I hope that the State Department will continue to be the State Department, it has opened a new museum of diplomacy, and I'm giving all my pins to them. Yeah. 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 It's a new must-see stop yeah. in Washington. Um, so uh, with we've got a lot of great questions here. We won't be able to get to all of them, but I'll do as many as I can. Uh, and they're of all shapes and sizes. Uh, I just want to say, what was it like dealing with all the men? Did they respect you? Um, well, let me just say, one of the things that happened was that when my name first came up for Secretary of State, um, people said, well, you know, Arabs will not deal with a woman Secretary of State. So what happened was that the um, Arab ambassadors at the UN said, we've had no problems dealing with Ambassador Albright. We wouldn't have any problems dealing with Secretary Albright. So that went away. Then somebody at the White House, and I never want to know who, said, Madeline is on the list, but she's second tier. Um, so I was sure I'd never get to be Secretary of State. But the truth is that I didn't have any problem with foreign men because I arrived in a very large plane that said United States of America. Um, I had more problem with the men in our own government, uh, not because they were male chauvinist pigs, but because uh, they had known me too long. I had been the carpool mother. Uh, I had been a friend of their wife's. I'd had them over for dinner um, and had done the cooking. And literally, they thought, how did she get to be Secretary of State when I should be Secretary of State? So it, it took a while, frankly, 
Um, and it wasn't simple, and if it obviously hadn't been for the fact that President Clinton wanted me to be Secretary of State, um, it would have been difficult. Um, but I think uh, that um, it worked. And by the way, my youngest granddaughter, when she was seven, eight years ago, said, so what's the big deal about Grandma Maddie being Secretary of State? Only girls are Secretary of State, um, which was true. Um, uh, yeah. um, um. And, and, you know, now there are a lot of little boys that are encouraged by the fact that a man can be Secretary of State. <laughs> <laughs> uh. So uh, sticking a little bit with the personal, seeing as you mentioned <laughs> your time during the carpools, what guidance do you offer moms who, like you, took a break and then returned to work? What was the biggest trade-off you made? Well, my situation was a little bit different. What happened was that um, I, I went to college. I went to Wellesley, and I went to, you know, and I was there at some time between the invention of the iPad and the discovery of fire. Uh, and um, so our graduation speaker was the Secretary of Defense at the time, Neil McElroy, because his daughter was in our class. And we all remember his commencement speech slightly differently, but what he basically said was your main responsibility is to get married and raise children. Uh, and then some of us think we heard preferably sons. Um, so what happened was I'm amazed that we didn't walk out. Um, but anyway, I waited a long time to get married, three days after graduation. Um, and basically, for me, um, I had children when I was uh, 24 years old, and I decided that I wanted to go to graduate school. Um, and uh, part of the issue was that it wasn't easy, and I always am very uncomfortable saying this, but what happened was part of the problem were other women um, who would say to me, shouldn't you be home with your children? Uh, instead of going to graduate school, and besides, my hollandaise sauce is so much better than yours. Um, which is when I came up with my statement that got so popular that it ended up on a Starbucks cups, which is, there's a special place in hell for women who don't help each other. And I think that is part of it. Um, um, and we, we tend to be very judgmental about each other. Um, and also, I was on Geraldine Ferraro's campaign as her senior foreign policy advisor, and I was, we were somewhere traveling in the Middle West, and this one woman came up and she said, well, how is she going to deal with a Russian? I don't know how to deal with a Russian. Well, nobody was asking this woman to deal with Russians. Um, and we have a tendency to project yeah. our own weakness onto other women. And then there's the Queen Bee Syndrome, which if there's only going to be one woman, it's going to be me and not you. And so I think that we have to, each of us has to have our own plan. Every woman's middle name is guilt, uh, because we are made to feel we're in the wrong place. And I, I actually have decided the following thing. Women can do everything, but not all at the same time. And we have an advantage over men, which is our life, um, because of biology, comes in segments. And so you can do one thing at one time and then do something else, but it requires um, a, and by the way, I don't believe the world would be better off if it were only run by women. If you think that, then um, you've forgotten high school. Um, and, uh, but I do think um, that there has to be a way for women and men to have respect for each other for what we all do and not think that there's just one 
plan that has to be, but I did manage to balance it sometimes better than other times, and, but I have no plot line on it. I can't give advice on it except to think that people, that women have to be able to, we have, the best word for anything to do with woman is choice. You should be able to decide how you want to run your life. So, let uh, say women have had a, a sort of decent tenure on Secretary of State. There hasn't yet been a woman president. Do you expect to see one in your lifetime? Yes, I do. In fact, I one actually did win. Yes. Uh, yeah. But I, I do think that what I think is happening that I'm very encouraged by, there are more women running for office. So there are more women in the pipeline, a lot more women that are um, capable of being president. And so I do think that it's moving in that direction. Do you have a candidate you'd like to see no, in 2020? I don't, no. Um, uh, but I do think that there are an awful lot of people out there. And um, uh, I, I think that First of all, we have to work on the 2018 elections. And let me just say, um, back to the Russia issue. I, there are many things that bother me about what happened in 2016, but we can't see all life in that regard. But what we have to do is make sure that it doesn't happen in 2018. Um, and we need to have the president recognize the fact that something has to be done about this because there was a story in the papers about the fact that people are concerned about our voting machines, um, that some of them are paperless um, and some of them can be um, hacked in a variety of ways. And we have to make sure that that election um, is uh, not one that is sabotaged by the Russians. Uh, prediction. Do you think impeachment is an actual possibility in this situation? And do you think President Pence is something to yeah. look forward to? Well, I, I think this is very hard to speculate about because we don't know. I think the part at the moment that I find depressing, because I, I so believe um, uh, in Congress. By the way, um, I've spent a lot of time on this now. Um, the first article of the Constitution is about the power of Congress. Um, and I have been going up a lot primarily to argue about budgets and things. But I go up there and I say it's article one time. Um, and the bottom line is I would like to see a more active Congress. And I would obviously like to see it with a different majority. But the bottom line is that I think that people need to understand what the responsibility of a member of Congress is, no matter what party. and so. Uh, I think it's time for some of the people to speak up. Uh, so doing the continued switches back from the uh, sort of personal to the political, what was your favorite book as a child and why? Um, well, I think nobody's going to understand this, but um, there is a Czech book, uh, which is about fireflies, um, called Brochki. Um, and basically I loved that book because these fireflies, um, they flew around, they got drunk on grape, one grape, and there were just wonderful stories about the fireflies. So to this day, whenever I see a firefly, I think of that book. So I loved that book. Yeah. 
Uh, and if you could make one decision from your career differently, what would it be and why? Um, well, I think from uh, my career generally has worked out pretty well. Um, as it turned out, uh, I had uh, wanted to be a journalist. Um, I had been one of the editors of my college paper, and I worked on a paper in Missouri while my husband was in the Army. And then we went to Chicago, where he already had a job with uh, the Chicago Sun-Times, and we were having dinner with his managing editor, who looked at me and said, so what are you going to do, honey? And I said, I'm going to work for a newspaper. And he said, I don't think so. You can't work on the same paper as your husband because of labor regulations. And even though there were three other papers um, in Chicago at the time, and he said, well, you wouldn't want to compete with your husband. Um, and, um, and instead of uh, kind of saying what I might say now, I saluted and found another life. As it turns out, journalism was better off for not having me. Um, and I did, and it, things did work out right. So, um, but I think that the, the thing that I would do is some, I, I have gone over decisions that I made while I was in office and things that I said or shouldn't have said. But I think the one, there are many aspects that I have thought about redoing, but the one that I'm really sorry about is what we didn't do in Rwanda. And I can explain it, um, and, I, and I do spend time explaining it, and I tried to get my own instructions changed, but I couldn't. But it's an example of, and I teach about this a lot, and the, the, what I would urge our decision makers um, and those who judge decision makers to understand what facts they have at the time, um, and therefore we have to push harder in making decisions about getting facts and about understanding the counter arguments to what we are arguing for, to look out for contingencies and really push ourselves. So I do think that if I were to do things over again, I think that I would push harder on some issues in decision making. I wish we had gone into Bosnia earlier. I wish we had um, done more on Rwanda. I wish that we had been able to push the UN to do more of the things. So, um, and I know there are some people who think that we made a, a mistake in expanding NATO. I don't think that. But it, they're examples of the fact that decision-making is very, very hard. And it requires you to trust the other people that are the decision-makers and to have the facts. And so that's one of the reasons I worry a little bit about what's going on now. Uh, so we're going to do a couple more questions and then uh, wrap up. But um, what was your proudest moment as Secretary of State? Well, my proudest moment really was, by the way, I, having said what I just said, I wished we'd done more on Bosnia, was um, I was the UN ambassador and not Secretary of State. I, I had an, uh, an argument with the hero of the Western world, Colin Powell, because I wanted to use force in Bosnia and he didn't want to. Um, anyway, then, I'll, then I'm Secretary of State while the Kosovo things are going on. And, and I really had gotten so much, part of the weirdness of my life is that the major issue that we were dealing with were the Balkans. And I understood it because my father had been ambassador in Yugoslavia. And I'd followed, I mean, I understood that part of the world. And I thought we really should do something. And on Kosovo, 
it makes a great case study because I, the Secretary of State can say anything, but we have no airplanes. Um, and so I had to persuade the Pentagon to do something. Um, and fortunately, President Clinton agreed with me. So then what happens is we decide that we're going to do an air um, attacks in, in, on Kosovo. Um, the weather was bad. Um, the uh, Serbs put out decoys. Everything was going wrong. Um, and they called it Madeline's War. Um, and then when we won, they called it something else. But um, <laughs> the bottom line, we then, when it was over, I went to Pristina, the capital of Kosovo, and there were signs all over the place that said, thank you, USA, thank you, USA. Um, and we did make a difference. And, and I, I, I love going to Kosovo. There's a whole generation of little girls whose first name is Madeline. And so the bottom line is I'm proud that we did that. Um, and it was the right thing to do. But now there is the question about Americans. Um, we, um, we basically think things are done. We put a checklist by something. But the problems go on. And we, we are the most generous people in the world with the shortest attention span. And so what we have to do is understand that some of these issues go on and that the role of America is important, which is why I can't stand this business of that we are victims um, and that we are not playing the role we need to. President Clinton was the first one to use the term indispensable nation, but I used it so often that it became identified with me. But there's nothing about the word indispensable that says alone. It's just, uh, it just means partnerships. And so I would like to see America play our role as a partner with others so that people aren't dying somewhere because of uh, not anything they did, but what religion they are. So I'm going to close with uh, two questions. One, I'm going to broaden back out to the one geopolitical area we didn't cover, that's in the, which is the Middle East. And uh, Ruth mentioned at the start that you know when I was a journalist, I accompanied you on a trip to the Middle East, which, among other things, is the only time I've ever been to four countries in one day, <laughs> uh, which was to Israel, Lebanon, uh, Syria, and Egypt. But at that time, one of the trips we did was to Syria and Hafez al-Assad, I think it was the last visit before he died, trying to get a peace deal. Yeah. In. And at the time, Syria was seen as the stable bulwark in the Middle East, you know, often for very negative reasons, but it was, I don't think anyone could envisage what has since happened there. And when you talk about the indispensable nation, that's something that you know, caused massive debates within the Obama administration, continue to about what is the role of the United States yeah. for such a multi-layered right. conflict that involves Russia, Iran, everybody else? Well, let me say, I, I yeah. worked for a president who yeah. read a lot, and he assigned us books. Yeah. And one that President Clinton assigned to me was called The Peace to End All Peace by David Fromkin, an American historian, who explained how the modern Middle East was created after the end of World War I when the Ottoman Empire uh, was destroyed. The short version of the book is that it was created by the British and French um, bureaucracies lying to each other um, and basically creating some artificial countries, grouping various countries together um, that didn't quite fit. Um, and then there were issues about who was the guarantor of what was happening in the Middle East, whether it was the French or the British. And then at the end of World War II, the US in many ways took over that role. Um, and 
Um, it is an unbelievably complicated place. One of the things um, that I did recently, because I do believe in bipartisanship, was to do a study of what should be done in the Middle East with Steve Hadley, who had been the National Security Advisor for President Bush. Um, and we spent a lot of time kind of looking at what the issues were um, in the Middle East. Uh, and part of it is the artificiality of some of the countries. Part of it is now what is um, a really unbelievable competition between the Iranians and the Saudis. Um, or the Shia. Most Americans know nothing about Islam, much less the difference between Shia and Sunni. So it's Iran, the Persians versus the Arabs, uh, and the Shia versus the Sunni, which is uh, being played out in various places, and Syria being one of them. Um, and you're right. Uh, I visited Hafez Assad um, in, uh, several times. I even, and what is so interesting, given what's going on now, Crown Prince Abdullah later king of Saudi Arabia, wanted me to meet the young um, new Arab leaders. And I had been, I had represented the U.S. at Hafez Assad's funeral, and that was the first time I met Bashar Assad. But then um, Abdullah had invited Bashar Assad to Riyadh so I could meet him again and have a discussion with him. And it was interesting because meeting him, one and one made two, but two and two didn't make four. There was something about him that didn't work. Um, and, that, and I wondered who was going to be kind of controlling him um, later. And Syria has become the, the, the petri dish of everything that is going wrong in the Middle East. I do think we need to recognize that there is a massive crisis in the Middle East that is spreading out. Um, I do think that it can't be handled purely by the countries there. I do believe that there needs to be some way that there is, um, whether the UN or some um, organization does try to help some of the issues, because it is spewing out, causing the kinds of problems we were talking about um, in Europe, where the people don't want to leave the country they're born in. Um, and so the kinds of things that are happening in Europe have a lot to do now with people that are there, that have been kicked out of their country. Um, and I think we need to pay more attention. I happen to have disagreed with some of President Obama's policies in not taking a more active role. And that's because, and one of the problems always is that no president comes in with a clean slate. I happen to think that the war in Iraq was the, one of the biggest mistakes the United States has ever made. And that is part of what is happening here. And it has to do with the fact that, the, uh, you know, we can be, uh, as powerful as we want to be, but if our intelligence doesn't work and the intelligence is wrong, it's the Achilles heel of all decision making. So there's an awful lot that has to be done, but I do think the Middle East, uh, you know, the question is what is the most dangerous place in the world? And this competition between what is happening in the Middle East and what is happening on the Korean Peninsula and few other places, but I do think the Middle East is a tinderbox and we are not paying enough attention to it. And especially if the president one day says he's pulling out of Syria and the next day he's doing something else, there is no plan and we need a strategy. You cannot do foreign policy on a changing, unpredictable basis every day. There needs to be a decision-making process that works and a president who respects democratic institutions. So. 
I'm tempted to leave it on that because that's such a great note to finish on. But I will ask one final question, uh, which came from a school teacher who teaches history at high school. And you are a teacher as well as a diplomat. And I asked, what would you say the most important lesson to give to high school students today is from history at this time in America's politics? Uh, first of all, that history is important. But I think that the most important lesson is to understand, and I truly believe this because I believe in America, um, that we need to understand more about what America is and what our responsibilities are, and that we are a great country, and we are an exceptional country. Um, and I, I think that people need to understand American history. They need to understand how the Constitution was written. This business of the division in our country, us and them, Constitution begins with we, the people. Um, and I think that that is something that people need to learn. I think students need to understand, take courses in civics to go back and figure out what our responsibilities are as citizens and that history is not boring. History is what in fact should inform our lives, not only about what our predecessors did, but how we should live our lives now. And for me, as a naturalized American, um, I consider understanding American history uh, more than anything. And if I can say in on this personal note is that um, one of the things I like to do is to uh, go and help at naturalization ceremonies. And um, I always renew my vows, but on July 4th, 2000, was one that was particularly moving because it was at Monticello. Um, I, after all, had Jefferson's job. And so um, what happened was that I couldn't swear people in because I'm uh, not an officer of the law, but I can give them their naturalization certificates. And so um, I'm handing them out, and all of a sudden I hear this man saying, can you believe I'm a refugee and I just got my naturalization certificate from the Secretary of State? And I went up to him and I said, can you believe that a refugee is Secretary of State? That is what America is about. Well, thank you. Um, really, you, you're already giving the book, but really, uh, uh, a huge privilege and a pleasure to hear from you. Uh, please, everybody, do read the book. Uh, it's, it's excellent reading and uh, has many more pearls of wisdom from the secretary. And please join me in thanking her one more time yeah. for yeah. Yeah. Thank you for all your kindness. Thank you very much. Thank you. That was Madeleine Albright at Seattle Arts and Lectures in 2018. This was Sal on Air, a podcast featuring some of the most engaging talks from the world's best writers for more than 30 years of Seattle Arts and Lectures. Support for the inaugural season of Sal on Air comes from the MJ Murdoch Charitable Trust. To hear more from Sal on Air, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. For more conversation and connection, join us for our 2018-19 season featuring talks by Doris Kearns Goodwin, Pete Souza, Jill Lepore, and more literary surprises. Tickets are available now at lectures.org. Our show is produced by Jack Straw Cultural Center. Special thanks to the Seattle Arts and Lectures staff 
board, and community. This show would not be possible without them. Thanks also to Daniel Spills for our theme music, and thanks to all of you for listening. I'm Ruth Dickey, and this has been another edition of Sal on Air from Seattle Arts and Lectures.